Our sermon text this evening comes from 1 Timothy 1. Um, So if you have a copy of scripture, I would invite you to open up to 1 Timothy 1. Um, It is found on page 991 for the Pew Bibles. And our text will be 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, When I preached this last, the person that was doing the slides at the church said I couldn't get more ones in a text if I tried. And so uh, we're going to read that. 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, I have always been fascinated with ancient marine navigation. Um, I think that it's a near miracle that anybody was able to make it across an ocean before GPS was ever invented. Uh, If you were to speak to my wife after the service, she would tell you that uh, I often need GPS going to places I've been a number of times. And I usually don't rely on GPS. What will happen is my heart will know which direction I want to go, and I'll realize very quickly I'm headed in the wrong direction. And so Tiffany pulls up the GPS for me, and we get on our way once again. And it's, it's convenient, right? It's convenient to have this little direction giver in our pockets at any given time. And as convenient as these tools are, I think that we begin to lose something the more and more we begin to rely on them. And what I think we lose is a connection to our bearings. And what I mean by that is that throughout the, uh, the whole course of navigation history, navigators have had a vital connection to the points of navigation. And what I mean by that is, for example, if you read the Odyssey, you'll notice that Odysseus and his men, they never sail too far away from the shore. They always want to be able to see from where they came and where they're going. So they would always keep various islands in their eyesight, and they would use these markers to navigate where they were going. And beyond that, people would follow the trajectory of the sun and keep a constant eye on its course to see where to navigate in relation to it. And the same thing, as you go further and further throughout this history, you see that people started to navigate with the stars. 
they would develop tools like the sextant so that they could see what the stars, where their position was in relation to their map and where they wanted to go. And in this pre-GPS world, there is a vital connection between navigators and these fixed points. The sun, the stars, these landmarks, they were constants. And they were constants that these navigators would orient their entire navigational journey around. And failure to do so would lead to fatal results in an unforgiving sea. And so we might not have the same kind of connection to our earthly bearings as our forebears, but I think that this idea is still indispensable for our spiritual lives. You see, without a vital connection to gospel bearings, it's easy to drift, to verge off of course, and to even make a shipwreck of your faith. And we see that this um, threat is present in tonight's passage because we see Paul writing to Timothy to confront the issue of false teaching in the church. You see, there are some teachers who have lost their spiritual bearings, and it's put both themselves and the church at large in danger, in danger of shipwreck. And so amid this concern, Paul is writing to Timothy and reminding him and us that this antidote to theological division and diversion in the church is a faithful focus on the gospel that aims towards love a faithful focus on the gospel that aims toward love. And so we're going to consider this tonight uh, in the passage under two headings. We're going to look at a corrective charge and a gospel aim. So beginning with a corrective charge, we see that Paul wastes no time getting down to business with Timothy. He opens his letter as if he's already mid-thought. If you look with me at verses 3 and 4, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons um, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This is an urgent message to Timothy to remember this charge that Paul gave him, that he is called to stay in Ephesus and correct false teaching. But Paul's urgency here, it doesn't come from any kind of inexperience or any kind of forgetfulness in Timothy. But instead, his urgency stems from the gravity of the situation that he finds himself in. But you might be asking yourself, what exactly is this situation? We can look at this passage, and it looks like Paul doesn't exactly give a lot of details as to what's going on or even the nature of the false teaching. Well, thankfully... Acts 19 and 20 give us some background to this passage and tells of the background to the situation in the Ephesian church. Because you see in Acts 19, Paul is on his missionary journeys. And throughout these missionary journeys, he eventually stops in Ephesus. And Ephesus is very important because it's the spot where Paul spends the most time ministering in his missionary journeys. He spends nearly three years there. And so after three years of planting and building up a church and worshiping with fellow believers, he decides it's time to move on to Macedonia. And who does he leave? He leaves Timothy. Timothy, who he says in verse 2 here, is his true child in the faith. Timothy, who was his right-hand man, he leaves in charge of this church. And then so he goes, he departs to Macedonia, and after some time, he makes his way back to Ephesus. And when he does so, he calls the elders and Timothy together, 
And he issues in Acts 20, verses 27 through 31, a charge and a warning. And here's what he says to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And we see here now, as he's writing to Timothy, that this warning has come true. False teachers have risen up within the church, and they are putting the body at risk of theological sway and diversion, and even theological division. And so his previous charge to them is now more relevant than ever. And so this reminder is more or less an encouragement to hold fast to that original charge, to remember what I told you previously, because it's still relevant. As if he's telling Timothy and the elders, be alert. False teachers are both coming in and rising up within this congregation. And so remember your calling. Stay watchful. Correct these men and protect the flock. But at this point, it's worth asking, how did the church get to this point? I mean, there's a sense in which we aren't surprised. Paul warned that this would happen. But isn't it still a little bit surprising? Isn't it surprising that this church where Paul the Apostle ministered longer than anywhere else in his ministerial missionary journeys, this church where Paul leaves his sidekick, who is one of his best helpers, this church where he labored night and day for almost three years, is under a present threat of false teaching that seems to arise almost immediately after he leaves? I mean, how did it get to this point? And it goes to show us that no church, no matter how solid it may seem, is ultimately immune from the threat of false teaching. It doesn't mean that we're more or less susceptible, but it does mean that none of our churches are immune. And it leads us to ask the more pressing question, not how did it get to this point, but how does this take root in a church's culture? How does this culture of false teaching take root? Well, Ironically, uh, for false teaching to usually take root, it requires the truth. Because you see, on the one hand, it can look like taking a lie and mixing it with just enough truth to make it palatable, to make it persuasive, a little bit of sugar to make the medicine, or better yet, the poison, go down. But on the other hand, it can also look like not just mixing the truth with a lie, but it can simply look like misusing the truth itself either twisting it, overemphasizing certain aspects of it, or just misapplying it. Because you see, we can take something good and we can make it ultimate, which usually leads to false conclusions and rotten fruit and how it bears out in our lives. For example, say I take the good emphasis on growing in holiness in the Christian life and then I elevate it to an ultimate status. What kind of conclusions might I draw from that? Well, I might draw the conclusion that perfection is attainable in this life. And if that's my conclusion, what kind of fruit is that going to bear out in? Well, it might lead to judgmentalism. It might lead to legalism. It might lead to pride. 
Or to give another example, say I take the truth that the law no longer condemns me in Christ, but then conclude that therefore Christian obedience doesn't matter. And what will that fruit look like? It'll look like me living my life however I deem fit, apart from what Christ says in his word. You see, in both cases, I'd be taking something good and making it ultimate in such a way that it actually turns into false teaching. It actually turns into bad fruit, even though it started from a true or even a good place. And Paul is hinting that a similar dynamic seems to be happening here at Ephesus. If you look with me at verse 7, it says that these false teachers are driven by a desire to be teachers of the law. And the original Greek word that is translated as teachers of the law is the same word that's used time and again for Pharisees during Jesus' own ministry. And Paul's not saying that these men are Pharisees or even that they're Pharisaical, but there is potentially a, a bent towards authority, a, pet, a bent towards teaching authority within the church, that these men want an authoritative verse, voice in the church, and so they wield the law to assert that voice and to promote, in verse 4, endless myths and genealogy. And so the problem is that they've taken something good, the law, and they've elevated it to an ultimate status. And what happens is that their teaching is not producing the fruit of faith. It's not producing hope. And it's not producing love. But rather, we see it's producing, verse 4, speculations. Verse 6, vain discussion. And verse 7, a lack of understanding. They've given this ultimate significance to issues that are ultimately peripheral. And it's led them to drift away from the gospel. And that is why Paul brings this charge to correct false doctrine. That is why the charge to correct false teaching is so important, not only for Timothy, but for each and every one of us. You see, because we don't do it to simply be correct. We don't do it to be on the right side of theological history. And we don't do it to pursue right teaching for its own sake. You see, we do it because what we believe has eternal significance. What we believe, what we place our trust in, what we place our life in by what we believe is a matter of life and death. And so Paul is saying if these false teachers' beliefs are causing them to drift away from the gospel, then they are in a precarious place. The warnings of this are all over this letter. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says that the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. But notice, pay attention here, that Paul hasn't applied these words to these teachers just yet. You see, he's saying that some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Some have departed from the faith, but not these men, or at least not yet. And that shapes the way that he responds to this false teaching. Because Paul is not viewing them first and foremost as enemies. Paul is first and foremost viewing them as wayward sheep. You see, his, not, his goal is not to cut off and condemn them. But you see what he's doing here is he's trying to correct them and call them back. He has the heart of a shepherd that is moved by love and compassion. 
And that's the very same love that should help us move towards those who are entrusting their lives towards beliefs that cannot save them. To help us move towards those who are believing things that will ultimately leave them for dead. And so when we see people in the grip of false teaching, our urge should be to call them back. To call them back from the dangerous course that they're on and therefore restore them to truth, which is ultimately to restore them to life. You see, there's a song lyric that says that the opposite of love is indifference. And I think that that applies here because so often we as Christians can be politely indifferent to those who are caught in the grip of false teaching. We can be afraid of overstepping. We can be afraid of ruffling feathers. And this is with Christians or non-Christians. It doesn't matter. We don't want to overstep. And yet, when we are politely indifferent to false teaching, we are ultimately being unloving. It's unloving to remain indifferent to somebody whose very life could be hanging in the balance. It's unloving to leave people in the midst of their sin and unbelief. And so it's also a mistake to view belief as a them problem, right? It's a mistake to think that the consequences of unbelief or false teaching only extend as far as the person who believes them, as if there's no consequences for the further church body at all. It's almost, uh, it's almost like we view false teaching sometimes like a non-communicable disease. And it comes about in the ways that we can talk about other believers, Right? Oh, did you hear what so-and-so said the other day? Is that really what they believe? I mean, that is so off base. I really hope that they figure that out, though. And yet, that's not how Paul talks. That's not what Paul is getting at here. You see, Paul is acutely aware of the fact that we are all members of one body. And so a disease in one part of the body it can be detrimental and even fatal to the whole. And again, we see this in Acts 20 and in 1 Timothy 4.16. In Acts 20.29, Paul tells Timothy that teachers will rise up not just to leave and depart the faith themselves, but they will rise up to draw away the disciples after them. And we see in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy that keeping a close watch on his life and teaching will save both himself and his hearers. You see, false teaching, when we leave false teaching left unchecked, it leads not only to the falling away of the individuals trapped in it, but it puts the entire church at risk of swaying away from the truth, of leading towards division. It leads a church to the precarious place of not holding on to the centrality of the gospel. And that's why correction is so important. It both preserves and protects God's people. But I want you to hear me here that correction alone is not enough to transform this kind of error. It's not enough to simply state what's wrong, but instead we also have to focus and give our attention to what's right. You see, the cure for a culture of false teaching is for the gospel to take root in such a way that it transforms our entire church into a gospel culture. In particular, it's uh, a cure where the church looks like a group of believers that are focused on the gospel in a way that's aimed at love. Which brings us to our second and final point, a gospel aim. If you look at verse 5 with me, 
Paul says that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he's saying, therefore, that it's simply not enough to combat false teaching with correct doctrine left in a vacuum. Although that's certainly important, our correction always has a greater aim than mere correction itself. You see, we need to correct error, not just with right teaching, but with the gospel. And in particular, we need to be aiming at a hope where we see the gospel adorned with love. And that's what I mean when I talk about a gospel culture. That the gospel isn't something that we merely assent to and believe in the abstract, but we adorn it with our very life. The pastor, Ray Ortland talks about gospel culture in this way. Um, and it's a long quote, but he says that it is the corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, the vibe, feel, tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. It's not enough to simply know your doctrine politely inform others that they are wrong, and then go about your day. Plenty of people have great theology and yet live in a way that does not aim at love or have a vital connection to one another and the church body at large. And Pastor Ortland gives another clear example of this when he talks about it by showing a picture of a group of people standing in front of a banner that says, Jesus saves. We'd all agree with that, right? That's fantastic doctrine. That's the heart of the gospel. But the only problem is that the group of people standing in front of this banner were people that belonged to the KKK in full regalia. You see, it was a people that perhaps heard the gospel but didn't let it define and sweeten their very existence. And it led, therefore, to an anti-gospel belief and life. So therefore, the ultimate aim before us when we're faced with false teaching is not merely correction but for an anti-gospel culture to be uprooted by a vital belief in the gospel that bears itself out in love. Right doctrine leads to a correct, lived response. The gospel must shape the very fabric of our DNA, both individually and as a church culture. And when this kind of gospel culture takes root, a community emerges that's no longer marked by drifting. It's no longer marked by division. It's no longer marked by strife. But instead, it's marked by faith. It's marked by hope. It's marked by love. And it's marked by a Christ-likeness that becomes the very aroma and atmosphere of the church. It becomes a community that's watchful for error, but that can lovingly correct it with a heart that longs to rescue people caught in the trenches of false belief to rescue those who have gone astray. It's a church that protects. It's a church that preserves. A church that perseveres. And a church that loves. So therefore, um, we see that it's borne out in this way. And yet, what does that look like practically? What does it look like for this gospel culture to take root in our church? Well, it looks like, first, a faithful focus on the gospel that too is adorned with love. So first, when I say a faithful focus, I mean that our gaze has to be transfixed on Jesus and his gospel. 
This alone is the only thing that we are called to make ultimate, right? Christ and his gospel is the only good thing that we can make ultimate. And it means that we are enraptured by Christ. It means that in response to false teaching, it doesn't mean that we need to have a church filled with theological masterminds. It doesn't mean that to preserve doctrinal purity that you have to have theological micromanagement amongst all of our congregants. Theological micromanagement, a German engineer to make sure that you don't step out of line at any given moment, right? No, first and foremost, a church with a gospel culture is one that is enraptured by Christ and his gospel. That their gaze is just transfixed on what he has done. And don't hear me wrong. Of course, theology and precision and truth matter. I would not have gone to seminary for four years to the seminary I went to if I didn't believe in that. But I simply mean to say that you don't need your PhD in theology to have confidence in the face of false teaching. Because in Christ, he has given us everything we need. Because the key is not to be a mastermind, but to keep your bearings on the gospel as you navigate your way through this life. Paul told the Ephesian elders to be alert. He told them to pay careful attention. And so you and I also need to keep our focus fixed on Christ. He is the object of our faith, right? And as you do, your love for him, for his gospel, for his people will grow. Because when we love Christ, we love the things that Christ loves. And so that is our aim, is love. And that brings us to the second part of Paul's gospel charge here, right? It's not just that we have this faithful focus, but it's that we have a gospel that is adorned with love. It means that we have this gospel charge that aims at love. You see, the gospel, it's not something that you can just neatly compartmentalize into a certain aspect of your life. Because a genuine belief in Christ and his gospel will lead to transformed lives and responses in love. And there's a lot of confusion out there about the idea of what love actually means, right? The world is very confused about love. And yet, just like the chart-topping Boston song, I'm here to tell you that love is more than a feeling. You see, in fact, love looks more like obedient action than it does pure emotion. And perhaps that sounds a little strange to you. You see, the world doesn't really have this concept of love and obedience being tied together. We might have acts of service, um, but definitely not obedience. And yet Paul tells us in Romans 13.10 that love is the fulfilling of the law. And how can this be the case, right? I was just saying a little while ago that the root of the false teaching here in Ephesus is that these false teachings were misusing and overemphasizing the law. They were using the law to beat up on believers when the law was given for the unjust. And so how can Paul say here that the aim of the gospel is love and then elsewhere say that love fulfills the law? How can Paul bring love and obedience so closely together, tie them together through the law when he was just correcting a misuse of the law? Well, he can do this and say this because of the gospel. Because you see, by itself, the law, it demands perfect obedience. And it causes sinners left to themselves to obey out of fear, out of dread, and to obey in a way that will never be enough, when that just increases more and more fear and more and more dread. And yet we see that Christ, in response to that, he loved us by fulfilling the law on our behalf. 
by living a perfect life and then dying in our place and therefore releasing us from the curse of the law, releasing us from the need to earn our justification because we never could, and therefore freeing us to keep his commandments in love. You see, we don't obey because we must anymore, but we can obey simply because we can. It's only through the freedom that Christ gives us in the gospel that love and obedience can be tied together. And I think that Tim Keller said it best. He says, Jesus doesn't just say, my love is based on your behavior. No, instead, Jesus says, I want you to base your behavior on my love. Therefore, the only way to truly adorn the gospel in love, the only way to be lovingly obedient is first and foremost to believe the gospel. Believe it, keep believing it, never stop believing it, help one another keep believing it. It always begins with the gospel. It never begins with our own effort or our own works. The gospel is what frees us to love. It's what frees us to be obedient out of thanksgiving. We can earn nothing on our own. And so with eyes fixed on Jesus, you see that if you orient your life around that fixed constant of Christ and his gospel, that you can start to navigate through life with love. With your eyes fixed on Jesus, you will orient your entire existence around the gospel and help each other press on in the faith, knowing that you can face trials, you can face false teaching, you can face temptation with hope with security, and with assurance in Christ. And that, that is what a gospel culture looks like. It begins when we cultivate a faithful focus on the gospel that's aimed at love towards Christ and towards one another. A gospel that we believe and that allows us to press on regardless of the circumstance. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, um, as we go throughout this life, we are just confronted day in and day out, both inside and outside the church, with messages that try to steer us away from the gospel. And Lord, you have called us not to, not to be masters, not to um, protect your gospel because it doesn't need us to protect it, Lord. You will preserve your people and your gospel, and yet you have called us to attend to it. You've called us to fix our eyes upon it. You've called us to steward the truth of your word. And Lord, we thank you that that work is ultimately up to you, and yet you invite us to participate in it. You have given us your spirit that testifies to the truth of your word in our hearts and our minds. That week in and week out, as we hear the preaching of your word, we are reminded of the gospel. That we are reminded to fight the spiritual amnesia that we are faced with each and every day. And so, Lord, uh, I just pray that as we go about our weeks, as we are faced with all these various things, that we may hold fast to your gospel. That it may be that fixed point around which our entire lives are oriented. And that we can navigate this life with hope, with peace, with joy, and with love knowing that we have everything we need in Christ and that he simply calls us to come to him and to rest and to receive his finished work. And may we testify about this boldly to our friends and to our neighbors that don't know you, that we seek to uh, fight all kinds of unbelief, but especially for those that don't know you, Lord, for those that have not placed their faith in Christ, 
I pray that you can use us as instruments of proclaiming your word uh, to invite people to hear the word preached and that we can have confidence that it's through your word that you change hearts, Lord. And so be with us throughout this week, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.